0: Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come, Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The First 2000 Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! When President Lee was um,
1: talking at priesthood meeting on Saturday night about some of the organizations that um, are outside of the church and are trying to accomplish certain things as independent units, and that he wished they would cease and desist, they've had—they've got two types of groups that they're having trouble with. I guess it's more than that, but maybe two. There are those who. Um, have become activists in one way or another. There's a group, uh, two groups up in Idaho, and they're spreading down to southern Utah where they're taking people right out of the church to live united order and so forth and get prepared for the for the great catastrophe that is about to come, getting themselves isolated, etc. And, of course, takes them right out of the church. You'll notice he specifically referred to that group. Then there's been a group that have been trying to get a lot of people to join them in a tax rebellion. And... Um, if a person has an individual problem with the tax people that's that's one thing but to get a, to get the church identified uh, or church membership identified with a tax rebellion, this is not the way to solve that problem it's bad enough as it is, but it involves correcting it back in Washington, not just having a rebellion against it. The church doesn't believe in that approach at all and so and then there have been some other people that um, have uh, uh, become activists so to speak and kind of given the church a black eye and uh, the Neighborhood emergency network that was set up in Salt Lake about two years ago by a man who was afterwards excommunicated from the church that got He referred to that specifically organizing the neighborhoods, so uh, the, the as the, the church has said this over and over again I think I mentioned to you before that way back in 65 One of the conference talks under the direction of President McKay says the church is not going to save the Constitution. The elders of Israel must. Remember that one? Very next year, President McKay said the church must remain neutral. And what we want you to do is to have an organized self-education program in which our people know what's happening and know what to do about it. And President Lee recently came out with an instruction on how to vote. Did I mention that in class? And he says take Mosiah chapter 29 as your guide. And then look for the people that most closely conform to what the church believes in, and be prayerful with the Lord, and that's how you know how to vote. Because he said, in effect, the church isn't going to tell you. That's your responsibility. So one of the things that we've been trying to do in, uh, in our educational program is to keep it from spilling over into some of these areas that, uh, for some reason or another, constantly haunts the church. Uh, keep it educational so that you know what's going on but doesn't involve the church per se the church just cannot get involved in those things and the adversary is closing in on the kingdom tighter all the time using any um, church official statement by a church official or anything to bring an attack on the church so it's a very delicate area particularly at this late stage it wasn't so delicate ten years ago it is now I think I've mentioned this to you before that it's so what we've tried to do, um, our next Freeman Report, for example, will present the Democratic platform just like the Democrats want it presented, and the next one will present the Republican platform just like the Republicans want it presented, and the next one will present the American platform just like they themselves are presenting it, without editorial comment or analysis. Then at least you have something to go by. Uh, we've just had hundreds of people come into the Freeman Institute down there and say, uh, "What, what what candidates are you recommending? None. Well, um, isn't there a right way to go? Yes. Well, what is it? There's the table and all the candidates. Educate yourself. Then you decide. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, Freeman Institute has a copy of it. In fact, they have a whole write-up on taking what he suggested. He made six suggestions, and what we did was to take them and research back into the writings of the Brethren where it's all spelled out. And um, the original quotation by Brother Lee, it's all together in one little six-page brochure, mimeograph brochure. Uh, uh, LDS instructions, let's see, Prophet um, instructs LDS on how to vote, something like that. Just ask for the little brochure on how to vote. I think it's a dime or something, just to cover the cost of the printing. Oh, you've got your picture of the Ark. Fine. Who didn't get to see uh, Brother Shumate? Oh, my goodness. Just one corner of us here. So, um, uh, Mike, uh, just start it down here at the front and then go as far as you can. Now, this is Brother uh, Shumate's impression of uh, the Ark. Have you seen it on the front row? okay then pass it along whoever has not seen it and then it will come back but this this side hasn't seen it either go down the center and then come right back down the other side okay any other question on that on the economy well there aren't enough involved to affect the economy is that what you mean well i've uh, For example, if I were involved in in the um, tax protest, and there's plenty to protest about because they've been using some very illegal methods on it, as an individual, I would go right ahead and do what I have a legal right to do. Uh, But I wouldn't try to involve my cousins and all my relatives. uh, I mean, it's an individual thing. They just didn't want to have... It was beginning to attach itself to the church, and a lot of people are in the tax rebellion beside the church, but... They were promoting it in a way that uh, President Lee said would not be good, and so he recommended it. Now, the question was, do, does, is there anyone who has a legal right not to pay taxes? Yes. And um, they found that um, when they got into it, they, they, uh, they actually were being taxed improperly. And uh, so they went ahead and protested to the courts, and they've been winning. And they were so successful, they went out and said, everybody do the same thing. Well, not everybody can do the same thing. They'll end up in jail. It depends on one's own circumstances. So the, the, the government never asked anybody to pay taxes. wasn't supposed to. But there were some people who didn't have to pay taxes uh, that had started to pay taxes, and then uh, it had... Um, when they stopped trying to pay them, then there was a protest. Then they ordered in their books. and They said, well, I don't have to bring in my books because uh, you'll use them to convict me of something. So I plead the Fifth Amendment on my books. And lo and behold, that held up in court. So the uh, Internal Revenue Service is beside itself. What does it do now? If that word gets out, they're in real trouble. How, do, how are they going to do it? So there were, there's a lot of problems involved in it, and what Brother Lee was saying, in effect, we're not the kind of people that get anarchy and revolt going. We're the kind of people that if there's something wrong, we go to Washington and correct it. And you yourself are entitled to enforce any of your personal rights, but don't get a big mass protest going that's not the way to do it well let's see he said that there were some things we'll have to get a copy of it and study it carefully he said there were some things that you must not um, try to um, uh, let's see Uh, he said I don't want dissension anymore in the quorums of the priesthood in other words don't introduce into your priesthood meeting things that aren't part of the priesthood program I will tell you what the priesthood can handle and and don't inject these things into the priesthood. Program. We'll tell you uh, if it's outside of the priesthood program. In other words, don't get it. In, don't get the church involved. That was what I understood him to. Uh, in fact, I've been present when he said that on several occasions. That everybody that's trying to solve problems don't involve the church, because everybody does. You know, they quote a scripture or something, and relief society split open. And so do priesthood meetings over these very delicate things. And he wants to just gradually keep that outside, which I think is a healthy thing. Way back here now. The question uh, is, what was President Lee referring to when he said that there were some of these sensational books that are predicting calamities, etc.? What does he have reference to? And in another statement, he said, now let's get acquainted with our scriptures and not depend so much on commentaries concerning them which once again is, is sound advice. Okay, everybody in the back? All right. Um, for, for a long time, uh, the Old Testament, for example, was completely neglected. Uh, nobody read it, nobody studied it. The only textbooks we had were in seminary and institute, and they were written by Gentiles. Or if they were written by members of the church, they always gave the Gentile presentation. They never gave the Book of Abraham, this wasn't quoted, they just never gave the LDS point of view. And as a result, my generation got to studying the Old Testament, found out what great prophecies were there, and, and and they began writing quite a number of books in that area, commenting on them. Then we found people that were spending all their time reading the commentaries and not reading the original Old Testament or Scripture. The same is true of the Book of Mormon. They wouldn't read the Book of Mormon, they'd read somebody's... Uh, Book on the Book of Mormon. So, um, what the brethren are trying to get us to do is to go back to our original sources, so that we can flip the scriptures anywhere and feel at home with them. Now, your generation is doing a lot better at that than mine did, but that's what he's talking about. Get back to the scriptures. Uh, sometimes um, you'll hear somebody quote a prophecy, and it's right out of the White Horse prophecy. It is not a creditable source, and they quote it as though it were the scripture. And so, I'll say to them, "Now, do you know what you're quoting?" Well, sure, that's a prophecy in the Scriptures. I said, do you think you could find it? Yes, you bet. I'll look it up. And I said, okay, just to save you time, look in the white horse prophecy. So that because it won't be in the Scripture. And that was the prophecy that the prophet Joseph gave. And two men went home and wrote it down for about four or five pages and hoped that they got it right. And it's full of symbols of all kinds. So nobody knows whether they got it right. And so the church said, don't use it because we don't know. Don't mix that up with the Scripture. So one or two of the books on prophecy have done that. They've mixed in patriarchal blessings and uh, all kinds of things and put it right alongside the scripture. And this was a mistake. So when I wrote prophecy in modern times, in fact, all of my books, you'll notice there are no apocryphal sources cited. They're either the standard works or the teachings of the brethren. And if I'm trying to draw a conclusion for you, based on what little evidence we have, you'll notice I will say it would appear that or this would seem to be so, etc. Now, as we get in the third thousand years, you're going to find that it's even much more documented than this one. Because when I first wrote this one and had some of the Brethren review it, some of the Brethren here at the BYU, they said it's too defensive. I mean, you've got things documented there that everybody knows. They were wrong. Boy, and that's hundreds and hundreds of letters I've had to write. So I'd strike out all of this that everybody was supposed to know. And uh, here I get these letters. Where would you get that from? Is that your opinion or is that scriptural? So from then on, you'll notice in the third thousand years when we read it uh, shortly, every phrase, uh, if it says the sky was blue that day, why, it's documented. It's (laughs) down underneath. It says the sky was clear and blue. Um, People thought I was making up this or, you know, these were just my opinions. If my opinion is in there, I always try to signal you. By saying it was thus. So, otherwise, it's flatly what the Scripture teaches. And I'm rather a literalist. It says it was thus, so I say it was thus. The donkey spoke to Balaam, so the donkey spoke to Balaam. And um, some people say, well, of course, that would be impossible. Well, um, was it or wasn't? Um, I put in that that's what the Scripture says. So, I've tried to teach it just as the Scripture teaches it, where the source is cited. So, that's what the brethren really, I think, are trying to emphasize. Get to your Scriptures, know your Scriptures. And all the first two thousand years is designed to do is to help you go back to the first chapter of genesis and say this is what the early brethren call the pre the spiritual creation and that's why it's different in the second chapter in fact at the end it says there's no flesh upon the earth that we're now living on and man was introduced on the seventh day that's all that's intended to do to do with the book of mormon i tried to do this same thing by the way and couldn't get any help from the Lord at all. I, I just wasted a year or more writing and couldn't do anything. So I experimented with some different approaches. And finally I got an approach of programmed learning, where you have to read the Book of Mormon. We can't even, uh, the book is full of blanks. All important words, you've got to fill in yourself. It's a do-it-yourself book now. And the, we just have had a wonderful spiritual experience preparing that one. Because you open that book, and you've got to have the Book of Mormon right there. And it's the kind of book that'll make you talk to yourself, as some of you know. Who your roommates say, shush, 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 shush. Uh, Isn't that something oh, that's amazing? Oh, that's, that's what he says, all right? You write it down here, you see? Well, that's, how, that's why you remember. it. So when I examine my students in Book of Mormon and give them what used to be the graduate-level exams from the College of Religion, uh, they, 87% of them get A's and B's. And most of the rest get easy. Either, if you've studied it, easy. Some of the students will say, gee, those are easy exams, Brother Scottson. Yes, if you've studied it, you can answer 100 questions in 25 minutes. Other students come up and say, Brother Scottson, that's way too technical. So it is if you haven't studied it. Very technical. Terribly technical. You even have to know names and places and doctrines. You have to know all those things. Right. Let's see, our first test is, uh, did you finish chapter 28 today? Did you finish 32? Let's see. You mean you're all through? Okay, Uh, it'll take me today and Thursday to catch up. Let's plan on our test Tuesday. Right? And you don't have to turn in anything Thursday or Tuesday. How's that? Okay, let me get right after this now. Uh, We've taken... Let me just say this about conference in closing this was one of the great conference sessions uh, of my time one of the greatest no doubt about it spirit was there and i think presently was entirely right there was no place that our savior would have rather have been than there with with the with his servants and friends and in that conference and you heard one of the apostles now the new apostle give his special witness that as he went into his new calling, his knowledge of the Christ had been made perfect. And as Joseph Smith says, that's when you've been allowed to see and feel and hear across the veil. we got a great new apostle. He reminds me of Nephi, both in stature and integrity. He's, He's a great person. I have a great admiration for him. So we're living in a great day. You're going to find things moving fast. And I will say this, watch the prophets carefully now. Because we're getting some instructions that are a little different than they were ten years ago. It's going to go like this. And you're going to have to stay very close. If anybody's feelings get hurt as we start uh, going down the path, um, they must be accustomed to making change without getting their feelings hurt. See, this is what was the problem in 1890. The Lord said, all right, now shift. Lucifer's gotten the people to exercise their free agency to hedge up the kingdom. You're just about to have your temples closed. All the missionary work stopped. And the people absolutely neutralized. Now, there is something you can do if you're willing to do it. So it took six months to convince before President Woodruff could quite see how this would solve it. And the Lord would not give him a command. He, well, Brother Woodruff said he just kept giving me revelations and visions of the future and how terrible it was going to be. If I couldn't reconcile myself, some, some shifts. And as soon as I was able to reconcile myself, the Lord told me exactly what to do. And I did um, you've got to stay close to the prophet. And some of them, some people, wonderful people, went brain right out of the church, and have since on the same same stumbling block. And they might call us to start living the United Order, the um, like Law of Consecration, in little colonies outside of Salt Lake City. Only certain proven people uh, allowed to go. Everybody says, "Well, I'm, aren't I worthy? What happened to me, etc." They could do all kinds of things now. And, that, and all the President Lee was saying, stand steady now. And When we ask you to do it, please do it. We're going to move very fast now. And you're going to see some great things happen the next few years, both by the enemy and by the church. Listen to the prophet and respond accordingly. Now, there were five commandments that were given right after Noah arrived in, the, in his new world. And his ark arrived, you remember, Mount Ararat, which is right up here. And I told you about that last time, tallest mountain in that range. And the one commandment I want you to remember is that Noah was told that, if, that thou shalt not kill, but he who sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, that's a responsibility of society. It was repeated to Moses. It's repeated in the 42nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And capital punishment for those who deliberately kill is a command of God. And so don't get hung up on this drive to do away with capital punishment because nobody should be killed unless he's guilty. But if he is guilty, the Lord says, I want you to send him back because otherwise you make his life more sacred than that of his victim. So that's that's a commandment of the Lord. I just want you to pick that one up as we went along. Now, it was shortly after the, the flood, Noah and his children, we have a pretty good idea, came down from Mount Ararat over on this side of the Tigris River down. Uh, these are... Uh, more or less fertile territories. This is high mountainous plateau territory up here. There are mountains all down through here. Then in between these two rivers it's just a great valley. Very lush and hot and luxurious, almost tropical. So they were over here for a while until uh, the grandson of Noah, uh, who was a descendant of Ham, Canaan, let's uh, see, great-grandson, said, um, Let's go over to this land. In other words, we'll leave Father Shem and Father Noah and we'll go over into Shinar, the land between the rivers, later called Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers. And there we will establish our kingdom. And Nimrod wanted to compete with the priesthood of Shem, and so he said, abandon Shem and his priesthood and cleave unto the institutes of Nimrod. And he had the most satanical, f- fantastic device for pulling away the righteous from their moorings. And he got them all involved in doing the one thing God did not want them to do, and that was to build, um, what do we call it, Megalopolis, uh, a, a huge city around a tremendous tower. And the introduction to the Book of Mormon said the intent was to build it so high so that if there was another flood, they could get up on top of it and defy God. Um... In any event, they built the Tower of Babel. They became a very wicked and licentious people. And I outline for you what that sophisticated Nimrod did in order to lure the people away and make his religion popular. Everything that the gospel said not to do, what did he say? Not only because it's fun, it seems like, but because it's what? It's sacred. It's religious. It's righteous. It's called fertility. You want to have a real ball? Come to church, Nimrod's church. Well, we got it. It's a psychedelic ceremony, and before we're through with you, you'll never be the same again. And they really weren't. So um, they would go over to Nimrod's church. He had a number of devices to deceive them. The first one was to say God is in his heaven, but believe me, He's a long ways away, which of course He is. And um, I, Nimrod, am the one that are getting the crops in and protecting you and setting up your cities, so I'll just put my little image up there in the temple so you won't forget it. Getting man above God is the first step in idolatry, idolatrous worship. The second one is to get animals above man. Isn't that interesting? We start worshiping animals because of their, uh, their uh, fertility, their virility. That's what they were worshiped for. They were sex objects. And this was sex worship, fertility worship, became absolutely uh, universal in the heathen world. And um, then the next thing was to do away with free agency by worshiping the what? The stars, astrology, and I see people with PhDs. Reading seems it's going to be a good day today, you know. And of course, anybody, you don't have to have a Ph.D., you've got a junior high school education. You know that if the stars did have an influence on human beings, it couldn't be that way anymore because they've all shifted position. And uh, this is an old superstition introduced way back in the days of Abraham that's come on down to our time, that if you're born under a certain star, when a certain star is in its ascendancy, then this will be your characters and qualifications. And as a result, if you find yourself doing something you shouldn't be doing, you can't help it that uh, you're born under a dog star or something um pig star uh, or you, you just can't help it that's uh, just too bad so um it deprived people of the sense of responsibility by being subject to the stars uh, just uh, I, I'm just a born loser I'm just a born loser that's all. can't help it you know born loser okay now um once this had um, spread, begun to spread across the earth, the earth, the Lord got ready to come down and divide uh, the earth first. Uh, he, we don't know really what he did, and that's why I brought the, uh, uh, this National Geographic globe, <clears throat> so that you can get an idea of what happened. Either the sea sank, which is the way I present it here, or we had the continental drift, which has, is a theory which has developed since. We don't know which is true. The thinking of the sea would seem to fit the 133rd section of the doctrine and covenants a little better but it actually doesn't matter. Uh, the floor of the sea as you can see is very thin all these are volcanoes the magma that's the interior of the earth which is boiling hot rock is it's so thin at the bottom of the sea floor that it keeps bubbling through and all those little things have bubbled up through the very thin skin of the crust of the earth to form these volcanoes and come up some of them five miles up to the ocean and become islands like the Hawaiian Islands. That's what they are. Those are islands. They're not continents at all. They come right up, bubbled up through the sea. And after the earth was divided, I want you to notice that at least one third of it was the Pacific Ocean. That's what Lehigh crossed, coming down along across to the Antarctic earth, apparently. And look how much of that was left water. Now, if all of this both America and Eurasia were um, once together, and they looked like they fit. And that's why the Continental Drift people are quite certain this is what happened. And it looks like these striations in here, which can be duplicated in a laboratory experiment, actually is a skidding motion as the Continental Drift occurs. Uh, if, if, if that was the situation, then all of this was once together. And Australia was up in here. They can tell from the tundra and the strait of the rocks where they think it once fitted then actually the ark didn't have to go halfway around the world, did it, to get to Mount Ararat. But if, we, but if it was from over here that it left, and it come clear over here, then it was a good distance around the earth. Now another thing I want you to notice is that each of the continents is cut off just as over by a knife. It, it isn't eroded off down into three miles of ocean. It's almost cut down three miles as though it were relatively recent. It just drops right off. And that's true of all the continents. And, um, Especially true along here in South America, where those wonderful fishing waters are right off the coast of Peru and Chile. But that's true of all the continents. They're cut kind of just like it was like a night, as though the ocean floor had either dropped or there was a continental drift. How do you account for the fact that you mentioned that in your report? Right. Well, I was suggesting there that in order for the lands to be one, the uh, land to be united, the ocean floors would have to rise, wouldn't they? To join the land, right? Uh, so uh, the 133rd section says at the beginning of the millennium, so well, the seas will be driven back, which would seem to sound like uh, uh, the floor rises. That's all we knew about it at the time I wrote this book in 1953. The continental drift theory then came in to suggest that what had happened was that the continents opened up and allowed the sea to flow down, and they'll come back together and push it back out. So it can be either way. I'll be glad to wait and see. I hope I live long enough to see, see what really happens. Okay, but if the sea floor dropped, which was the way I presented it here, based on the 133rd section, why well, that would be what would have occurred. And uh, it, it it does look like a dropping. However, the floor of the sea looks like continental drift rather than a dropping. So we're open to whatever really happened. We're just trying to present the best thinking we have at a particular time. Right. But this the question is for everybody. Drop, this west uh, the cut drop on, on the west side is, is the result of the continental drift and the pressures that are forcing it up. So science, it's wide open for scientific investigation. But the Lord says, I want to tell you it happened very recently. It, it wasn't uh, 10 million years ago. It was quite recent. That's, that's what the Lord said. Within the memory of man, the continents were divided. And it was about 100 years after the Great Flood. And our scientists here at BYU say that's something that can neither be proven nor disproven scientifically. So just go ahead and take the word of the Lord for it. Because science cannot make a contribution there at this time. <clears throat> now it was at this time, you'll remember, that the children of... There was one family living here, where Nimrod had set up his city of Babel, where the tower was built, and they were basically righteous people, and they wanted to go to, the, to some land where they could keep their language. And so that's the story of the people of Jared, and the Lord led them away, and they took with them what language? The Adamic tongue, the original language that was kept pure. Now, all the other languages, I want you to notice what happened. I think I've mentioned it before, but let me take 30 seconds to remind you of it. As soon as they received the gift of tongues, so that their thoughts are interpreted with a different word, uh, instead of saying uh, Miriam, you now say Maria. You say, what? Maria, you know Maria, My sister. You're what? Mi uh, Okay, uh, so we don't understand each other. Now, I'm in trouble because I can't write. The Adamic tongue will not say Maria. So I, work, I start drawing pictures. And writing had to start out from the most primitive type of uh, expression. And then it graduated from uh, the, the pictures into a symbol of the picture. Uh, so that you start out with a bird, draw the whole bird, for example. Uh, and then uh, you have this. That's the bird. That's the way the Egyptians did it. They had to do it the same way in China. Everybody's got a new language, and the wonderful Adamic tongue in which you could put the whole history of the Jaredite people on 24 gold plates is unavailable to the people. They had to develop new alphabet. Isn't that an interesting breakthrough in our studies? We wondered why they had to go back to primitive writing. This appears to be the reason. And nothing in the Adamic tongue would express their new languages. So they lost it. Only the Jaredites retained. Right. More of the same. Different peoples uh, developed, gradually developed abstractions to express an alphabet, to express words, and in some cases, phrases. Anyway, that, that'll kind of help you. Uh, so we got a little bit along here, not as far as I hoped I would, but we'll continue Thursday. Now, start reviewing. But, oh, thank you, thank you. I thought it was in- <laughs> morning class. Thank you. I cut you off once before this early, didn't I? I keep fighting that clock. Okay, good. I ca- crossed the confusion of tongues. Okay, now here's where the people went. <coughs> confusion of time, confusion of time. Okay, now here they start out from here, and then they spread. Even already, as some of them had begun to spread, it would appear. But um, in any event, the granddaughter of Noah um, went down here with her son Pharaoh. All this was underwater when they arrived. And they established a kingdom down here of righteousness. They are the seed of Ham. And when the Greeks came along, they called them blacks. And the word is Egyptus. Uh, so Joseph Smith originally translated it in its original Adamic form, and then that wouldn't mean anything to anybody. So he put it over into its transliterated form, Egyptus, after which Egypt was named. But actually, that is the Greek terminology, just like we say the mother of Jesus was Mary when it was actually Miriam. We're using the Greek name for Mary. You follow that, why Joseph Smith did it? Which your translator is allowed to do. The, the seed of Ham settled all up and down here. The seed of Ham and the seed of Japheth settled in here. More of the seed of Japheth went in here and here. The seed of J- Shem settled around here, up into this territory, and then set up a capital right here, at a place they called Salem, now called Jerusalem, and that's where Melchizedek had his famous city that was translated. Um, the um, Some of the peoples that were Shemites settled up and down in the desert countries and identified themselves later with the descendants of Abraham through Ishmael and became known as the Arabs. They occupied all of this territory and today have have occupied, have driven back all the Negroid races deep into Africa, occupy all of northern Africa, all of this territory, except Persia, is Arab today. Now, most of the Gentiles went on up into uh, Gaul and south um, Russia, went into Greece, went into Italy. That's all the seed of Japheth. Subsequently, the seed of Israel caught up with them, and, and it's sprinkled among them now. But originally those tribes of Japheth seemed to have gone up through between the Black and the Caspian Sea and on around and uh, became known by a multitude of tribes. Now, um, during this period of apostasy, uh, when they were worshipping animals and uh, they had sex cults and so forth, we had many of the righteous losing their children and slipping away. And so the Lord began to set up colonies. And I listed them in your book just so you'd see how many there were. One stayed over here in the east, where apparently both Noah and his son Shem remained. Shem living over 500 years, and, and Noah living 350 years after the flood. So that there was a colony there of righteous people at the time that Christ was born. And their prophets were told that the new star would appear, and that he would be born in the land of Jerusalem. And so as soon as it appeared, they set out. And it took them several months to get to Jerusalem. They weren't there for the manger scene. Unfortunately, it ruins all of our Christmas uh, pageants. Um, they didn't get there for a long time afterwards. In fact, uh, Herod said, when did you see that star? And so they told him. Then he knew how old Jesus was. Well, he said, you see if you can find him and come back and tell me. So they did find him, but he wasn't in a manger. Where was he? He was in a house. None not at all. We just know that they came from the Far East and That's all we know about. We don't even know how many wise men there were or what their names were. That's all been made up. The child. um, The star led them to the place where he was. That's all it says. And that they went in and found him. We don't have those details of how they identified him. Now, so these colonies were set up all around the earth.
0: And one was at
1: Salem, which was Melchizedek. One was over here. One was clear over in America. I think that there was a colony along the Yellow River in China. It sets up at exactly the same time. And I think that when we have the whole word of the Lord on the subject, we're going to find them spread up and down the Indus River. They all sprang up at that same identical time with advanced language, uh, metallurgy. Uh, the pottery of that period from the Indus and the Yellow River, you'd think they'd come out of the same mold almost. They're so similar. So I think the Lord was putting colonies around in various places. Then, uh, all of a sudden, it would appear that a group that were along the Indus River, which is next to India, up sea, it would appear that they apostatized and received the same curse that the Lamanites did, became a dark-skinned people. They then occupied all of India. When the Aryans came in, they were a beautiful people, so they intermarried with them, and then they decided that they didn't want to mix the bloods, and so they set up the caste system. Did you know that that was the way the caste system developed? To separate the, the blood. They had five castes, and the dark-skinned people were driven to the south. Some went to Australia, and when their children are born to them, they have brown hair and, and relatively light complexion. They get out on that hot sun, and they turn very dark. An anthropologist said they were from Africa, but the prophet of the Lord said they can have the priesthood. And, I, and when I was a boy growing up, the anthropologists were saying, you see how the, the brethren are all mixed up. Uh, One place they say they can't have the priesthood, the blacks down in Australia can't have it. Over in the Fiji Islands, the blacks can have it. Now the anthropologists are saying, do you know what? The dark-skinned people from Australia and from the Fiji Islands are Dravidians. They came from India. That's an interesting story. And here all the time the prophets said, well, they're dark, all right, but they can have the priesthood, so they can have it. The old Ethiopians have a tradition that they are a descendant of King David through Bathsheba. And as you uh, will see, this is, this, there's no basis for this at all historically. All right?